Welcome to Gas Chat. This week, we're talking about what's happening around the globe. Oil and gas prices have plummeted. Supply is absolutely bulging. Tankers filled with oil have nowhere to go. And fracking bankruptcies are the latest boom. Is this all because of COVID-19? Or was the oil and gas industry already fragile before the global pandemic began? I'm Kate Finlayson, and with me are two of IEFA's oil and gas experts, Clark Williams-Derry in the US and Bruce Robertson in Australia. G'day, Clark. Hi there, Kate. Hey, Bruce. Hi. Let's talk about the oil and gas industry before COVID-19. What was happening financially? If you listen to what the oil and gas industry is saying right now, you might think that their their financial problems just started with the coronavirus response or with the, the Saudi and OPEC and Russia price war. But really, in reality, the oil and gas sector in America has been financially struggling for the last decade. To many people's surprise, it's been producing what's called negative free cash flows. That is, it's spending more on drilling and on acquiring new mineral rights uh, than is actually able to generate by producing oil and gas. Now, obviously, the U.S. fracking sector has been phenomenally successful at producing a glut of oil and gas. It's helped bring prices down, but it has been very, very bad at producing cash. And it's been making investors increasingly troubled over the past two years Wall Street has been talking about how the companies need to stop paying attention to how many barrels of oil they're producing and start paying attention to how much cash they're producing. So the reality here is that that the oil and gas sector entered the coronavirus crisis already in crisis. It was already facing unprofitable conditions. It was not able to generate cash. And we've seen, you know, throughout the oil and gas sector in North America, a wave of bankruptcies that really started in 2014 and 15, when the oil prices fell from where they were before, which is around $100 a barrel down to the, you know, $40 to $70 range. You're saying yeah. that it was already in crisis before the pandemic began. Is that yeah. widely known? I don't think many people outside of Wall Street know it. I mean, like you look at the Wall Street Journal or look at some of the financial publications, it is very clear that you know Wall Street and a lot of investors really understand that this is an industry that was in distress. But outside of Wall Street, this is not a story that's widely known. And it's not really well understood even in the oil capitals like Houston. They you know, kind of think that they're doing just fine. You know, if you talk to them, they have this sunny optimism about their industry that is completely belied by the terrible cash results they've been producing over the past decade. And Bruce, the fracking industry in Australia, would they have been aware of what's happening in the US? Well, what's really interesting is you've got to divide the Australian industry up into two, the Northwest Shelf and then the onshore producers on the East Coast. The onshore producers on the East Coast have been facing many of the similar issues that you've seen in the US. The three major companies that operate on the East Coast since 2014 have had multi-billion dollar write-offs. You know, Santos has written off $7 billion, Origin another three, BG Group $5.7 billion. You know, these are massive capital write-offs due to the fact that they really got the economics of the industry wrong and it's really not that profitable. As Rystad Energy said, 15% of Australian production at current levels, current oil price levels, is unprofitable. And that's the key point. 
It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? It's a kind of a dead-end industry, it sounds like. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in my opinion, what's going on is that the fracking industry has a fundamentally broken business model. I mean, the business model is let's produce as much oil and gas as we possibly can. And let's hope that oil prices and gas prices rise as a result. It's completely backwards. I mean, if, if you have an entire industry that's dedicated to maximizing production with no constraints, what you're going to wind up with is what we have now, which is a supply glut and low prices. With the entire industry following the same business model of producing as much as it can, I mean, there's no way for that kind of business model to be profitable. Can I just ask a quick question there, Matt? Yeah. When we look at it, you know, North American oil and production companies have 86 billion of debt that's going to mature in the next few years, in between 2020 and 2024. We've already seen a lot of bankruptcies. What's your view on what's going to happen now we're coming out of coronavirus and the oil price has risen a little bit? What's your view on the bankruptcy sort of cycle, where we're at in that? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that we are probably entering a new round of, of bankruptcies, a new wave. I don't know if it's going to be a tidal wave. It's really going to depend on the shape of the recovery. And in some, to some respect, it'll depend on what happens in Washington, D.C. There's a, a number of proposals to, to help these companies sort of refinance their debt and avoid bankruptcy. But I don't think there's going to be any way for some of these companies to stay out of bankruptcy. We're already starting to see it with a couple of companies that have declared bankruptcy so far, even, uh, even this early in the, in the coronavirus crisis. But of course, these are companies that were on the ropes to begin with. So I think there's a very good chance that we're seeing just the, the leading edge of a, of a big new wave of bankruptcies. But it's hard to know how that's going to play out because it's hard to know what's going to happen with the global economy and global demand. I mean, there's, it's, that's, a, that's sort of still an unknown. But we've also seen in the U.S. Um, multi-billion dollar write-offs. I think Marathon Petroleum had a pretty big one recently, didn't they? Absolutely. What's really going to drive the bankruptcies is their ability to produce cash, enough cash to service their debt. And for those that have debt that's maturing in the near term, for them to be able to refinance and sort of kick the can down the road for another you know, 10 or five years, uh, maybe. The industry has actually been doing this for a long time, just sort of refinancing its old debt because it can't pay it off uh, and just kicking the can down the road. But I think we're going to start to see that the industry is starting to run out of road to kick the can down. There's a number of external factors at play now, isn't there, which makes it much harder for the industry to play by the old rules. The coronavirus has had a huge impact on oil and gas demand globally. Let's talk through that a little bit. What's been happening? Like there's a gas glut, demand has plummeted, capex cutbacks. Let's talk it through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you want to start with what's happening in Australia. Oh, no, go for it, Clark. Let's okay, go. sure. We're all ears here. Okay, well, so the latest numbers I've seen from the U.S. Department of Energy suggest that oil demand has been dropping during the coronavirus to the tune of about 25 to 30%. And that has created the situation where there's just a glut of oil in markets in the U.S. There's likely to be shortfalls in storage space. Basically, so much oil being produced and so little demand that they're running out of places to put the oil. And so like in many parts of the world, you're starting to see floating storage. You're starting to see tankers filled with oil off the coast of Southern California and Houston and, and even outside of New York. Just you know, basically oil with no market, no place to go. That actually triggered this you know, remarkable occurrence over the past month uh, where briefly oil prices in the US turned negative. This was right in late April when there were some fears that the 
main storage hub near this location called Cushing, Oklahoma, which is actually the place where U.S. oil futures are traded. They were worried that they were going to run out of storage. And so people who had bought into contracts and committed them to buy oil were suddenly panicking because they weren't sure they were going to be able to put the oil anywhere once they'd purchased it. So, you know, people were, were, were actually paying other people to take these contracts off their hand. And that drove prices negative. And that had never happened before. We'd never had a negative oil price in the U.S. We've had prices that have dropped. But the idea that people would be basically paying to give away their oil, uh, that's all related to this massive mismatch between abundant supply and weak demand. I've been reading a bit about how, at the moment, about 25 cargos of LNG were actually not taken recently. In other words, that the customers were prepared to pay for the service and not get delivery of the That's LNG. That's right. That's and, right. And LNG prices globally are at all-time lows for the liquefied product. In Australia, we had the Impex project off Darwin send a cargo up to Asia at $1.75 an MMBTU, which is incredibly cheap. Um, oh, gosh, well it's so cheap. Of, oh, well below the cost of production. You know, they're, they're, they might as well have sent up $100 bills in the hold of that ship rather than the gas. But That's right. I was just wondering if we could get a bit of a comment on how you're seeing the U.S. market, the LNG well, market. It's very much in the same boat, if you will, as the oil industry, where there's globally, there's just a glut of natural gas, LNG. In fact, before the coronavirus crisis started, you're already starting to see Asian prices flirt with 10-year loads. LNG a few years ago might sell for $8 for MMBTU, and as you say, now it's about $2 for MMBTU, maybe a little bit less than that from time to time. But even before the main impacts of the coronavirus crisis hit, LNG was already at a low, very low point. And the coronavirus has just made things that much worse. And you know, fundamentally, what you have here, again, is a mismatch between supply and demand. There's an abundant supply of LNG on global markets. There are a lot of people who are trying to sell it, and demand is down. So that's right. What we've seen in the U.S. is cancellation of cargoes. We've seen uh, international buyers just not want to pay for you know, the delivery of the natural gas. So we're actually willing to pay a penalty to these LNG companies. Usually it's about $3 per MMBTU just to basically tell the LNG suppliers to just hold on to their product and, and not ship it. But yeah, the remarkable thing is we're starting to see the case where U.S. gas prices, really cheap gas, doesn't even give LNG producers an advantage anymore because really you can sell the purchase price for gas in Asia right now. It's about what it costs to buy it in the U.S. So all the liquefaction costs, all the shipping costs, basically somebody's eating those costs because you can't sell your LNG in Asia for any more than you can sell the natural gas in the U.S. But these projects take a long time in the gestation path, don't they? You know, like they're multi-year projects to get up and running. And once they're up and running, they tend to produce. And what we've seen globally is this enormous sanctioning of projects, particularly in the US and in Australia. And Qatar, the three big producers, are all yeah. have major expansions slated to come on stream or have recently actually done this. And, yeah. and now what we're seeing is globally this massive glut that you know was originally slated to sort of end in 2027, 20, 28. And now we're looking at 
a much longer time, probably out past 2030 before this glut will fully resolve itself. The really interesting point is that Qatar, in all likelihood, will go ahead with its North Dome field sanctioning. And the reason why they'll go ahead with developing that project is that it straddles the border with Iran. And Iran have actually gone ahead and developed their part of the field. And basically, Qatar don't want to miss out. Uh, you know what's coming next then. <laughs> that's that's yeah, right. going right next to them. So in all likelihood, that development, despite the low prices, if they can find customers, Qatar will probably go ahead with that development. Unlike, you know, Australia's large developments off the northwest shelf where Woodside is looking to sanction projects, and indeed the ones off the Northern Territory have already been cancelled for now, as Woodside has also put their northwest shelf development on hold. So when we look globally, there could be more production coming out of Qatar, despite the very low prices and despite the seemingly uh, marketing glut. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's right. I think there might be an expectation that, oh, you know, some of these big producers, they'll, they'll have to cut back. Prices are so low that they're going to pull back and we'll start to see some sort of renormalization of the market. The problem is that there's a lot of LNG terminals that simply don't work when they're run at low levels of capacity. They become very uneconomic. Some of them don't work at all, but many of them become less economic when they run low levels. And so it's kind of like an, like it's an all or nothing thing for them. And so a project that runs at sort of partial capacity, it's not clear that that's going to happen that often. The result is, just like with the Qatar coming online, you may see you know, plenty of other gas producers continue to produce LNG, even though the economics don't support it because they don't have a good alternative. They don't have an economic alternative to cut back their production. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's, there's a lot of reason to believe that this glut of LNG is going to persist that it's not going to be something that clears out of the market in the next year or two, that this, is, this could be sort of the, the sign of you know, sort of the new normal, the new normal being too much LNG and prices that are too low to make a good profit. You know, we're going to have to watch and, and see how things play out, but I could imagine that a lot of LNG producers and a lot of LNG buyers are going to be you know, in some difficult circumstances because of their legacy obligations to produce or buy the natural uh, LNG. In summary, you're saying that basically the poor conditions that existed for oil and gas shareholders will continue. I think that's right. I, mean, I think that to one extent, what you can say is that the U.S. is starting to export its gas glut to the world. And with the same kind of effects on global prices that we've seen on oil prices already. The U.S. is, is sort of bound and determined, it seems, to produce lots and lots of oil and gas. The industry is set up to do that, and all the incentives are in place for the executives and the bankers to keep funneling money to an industry that, that has a fundamentally broken business model. And all the political incentives are in line that way. But the result is going to be a massive destruction of wealth, uh, and it's, it's going to be what I consider to be just a waste of money. Money thrown down might as well have been a dry hole because you, know, you can produce lots of oil and gas, but you cannot produce cash when the prices are too low. Oh, I don't know about you, Bruce, but that seems like a beautiful way to end. That's a beautiful way to end. Thank you very well, much, Clark. Well, thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Kate. That was Clark Williams Derry and Bruce Robertson, analysts with IEFA, or the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. For more expert analyses, please visit our website at IEFA.org. Thanks for joining Gas Chat, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.